Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. conference call. Please be advised that this call is being recorded. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Mr. Mark Hitschess, Vice President, Strategy, Planning, and Investor Relations. Mr. Hitschess, please go ahead. Thank you, Josh. Good morning, and thank you for joining us on this conference call discussing our third quarter 2020 operational and financial results. On this call this morning from Gibson Energy are Steve Spaulding, President and Chief Executive Officer, and Sean Brown, Chief Financial Officer. Listeners are reminded that today's call refers to non-GAAP measures and forward-looking information. Descriptions and qualifications of such measures and information are set out in our continuous disclosure documents available on CDAR. Now, I'd like to turn the call over to Steve. Thanks, Mark. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. It's been nearly nine months since the outbreak of COVID in North America. In this tough environment, we've continued to focus our strategy around our core terminals on high-quality cash flows and maintaining a strong balance sheet. The strategy strategy has continued to position us well in this environment. The performance of our infrastructure segment has been particularly resilient. Third-quarter segment profit of $93 million was a $3 million increase over the second quarter of this year, with segment profit over the first nine months of $28 million. We expect to be on the high end of our range for infrastructure. That's a target we set pre-COVID. In terms of what drives this resilience, there are several factors to point out. First, most of our tankage is operational storage and the tankage is a critical piece of infrastructure to ensure the reliable offtake of crude oil and allow our upstream customers to maximize the value of their production. Oil sands projects produce for decades. As a result, we have a lot of comfort around the need of these assets, and a strong line of sight of why our terminal assets keep getting recontracted. Our services that we provide our customers the ability to maximize their netbacks of their crude oil production. And that is why we've been so successful in building 7.5 million barrels of new tankage at Hardesty over the last four years. Our focus on the oil sands leads to 60% of our total company cash flow being take or pay and 80% being stable fee base. That's a key reason why Our earnings have been so stable this year. Our customers tend to think very long-term, enabling 10, 15, and even 20-year take-or-pay commitments. The last aspect of this resilience I wanted to cover is our ability to grow our infrastructure cash flows. This quarter's infrastructure segment profit grew 14% over third quarter of last year. 
In the fourth quarter of this year, we expect to continue to increase our infrastructure segment profit as additional assets are placed in service. The largest driver will be the 1.5 million barrels of new tankage we place in service at Hardesty before the end of the year. Also, in the U.S., we've seen an increase in throughput volumes and revenue each month despite the slowdown in drilling. We recently placed two 50,000-barrel tanks in service at the Wink Terminal, which is, which is now operational. We continue to advance connections to new producers and third-party gathering systems in the major egress pipelines out of Wink to the Gulf Coast. The DRU continues to progress very nicely and we are on budget and on schedule for a mid-2021 startup. We also expect to add to that growth. And we will come out with our formal budget for 2021 in December. We expect that infrastructure cap growth capital in 2021 to be at least $200 million. We continue to expect to sanction two to four tanks per year likely on the low end. The tankage for this year has slipped into 2021 due to pauses in negotiations during COVID. If we see continued progress in TMX, we expect our customers will need to secure their corresponding tankage at Edmonton sometime later next year. We have room for about 2 million barrels at our Edmonton terminal and we feel we're very well positioned to compete to build that tankage. At Hardesty, we continue to be in discussions for additional phases of the DRU. In the U.S., we'll be in that 25 to $50 million capital spend range. To the extent we sanction third-party tanks, we'll be on the upper end of that range. Returning to our strategy, our conservative approach of seeking to capture opportunities through our marketing organization, but not depending on it to maintain our financial position, has served us very well. In the first half of the year, the significant volatility, and particularly the opportunities created by crude near zero and a steep contango, led to outperformance in the marketing segment. Since then, the environment has been very challenging. Volatility has been limited. And the crude range, and crude's been range browned around $40 U.S. since June. Different, differentials have tightened, reducing margins at Moose Jaw, which has also decreased the demand for certain products, namely our drilling fluids. Combined with the compression, from low absolute prices, narrow differentials have also limited location and storage-based opportunities. The futures curve is flat, preventing time-based positions. In that context, I believe that $23 million in segment profit from our marketing segment in a difficult environment is a very strong result. We have a very talented marketing organization. Whether the market's been up or down, they've done a great job. 
but a sideways market is tough. And I have every confidence that if there's opportunities in the market, they will capitalize on it. But due to the tough marketing conditions, I believe the marketing segment could be close to break even in the fourth quarter. That would put us in our $80 million to $120 million range for the full year. Shifting gears to another lens through which we manage our business, we have continued to advance our sustainability and ESG initiatives on several fronts. In August, we made our first submission to CDP. We believe our carbon footprint is best in class in the Canadian midstream space on both an emissions per dollar revenue basis and barrel throughput basis. Managing climate change risk is very important to us, and we continue to explore additional opportunities to further reduce our impact and, our, and improve our resiliency as a company. Also in August, our board established a standalone sustainability in ESG committee. It is chaired by Judy Cott, an expert on ESG and responsible investment. I would tell you that we have very much benefited from her expertise on our ESG journey thus far. We're also pleased to have Peggy Montana join the board. She brings significant experience, particularly in safety and operations side of the business, from her time at one of the super majors. With her addition, three of our nine directors are female. At the start of October, Gibson made a real commitment to a cause I personally feel very strong about. With the donation of $1 million in a five-year partnership with Trellis, we are very much making a difference in the mental health of youth in our community. This is the largest financial donation in Gibson's history. And Gibson employees have also committed to dedicating a significant number of volunteer hours. It's certainly a challenging environment for our company right now. But this is exactly the time that communities need our support the most. And I'm very pleased we could make this happen. In summary, we're continuing to hear and execute on our strategy. Our business remains in a strong position with a bright future. The contribution from marketing in the fourth quarter is expected to be lower than our last few quarters, yet we remain fully funded with both our payout and leverage below target levels. Our infrastructure business is very resilient and our existing cash flows providing a very strong base for decades to come. We continue to expect to grow that cash flow. We'll deploy nearly $300 million this year and expect to sink at least $200 million next year. And our balance sheet is very strong and we will remain conservative in our approach to our business. I will now pass it over to Sean who will walk us through our third quarter results in more detail. Sean. 
Thanks, Steve. As Steve mentioned, our infrastructure business remains strong in the third quarter. With respect to the different components driving the $93 million in infrastructure segment profit, I would note, our terminals were up slightly relative to the second quarter. This was from a roughly equal mix of higher terminaling-related revenues and operating costs being slightly lower. Recall, roughly 85% of infrastructure segment profit would be from our terminals at Hardesty and Edmonton. Contribution from our Canadian small terminals and pipelines was in line with the second quarter and about 40% below pre-COVID levels. In the U.S., volumes continued to increase, with September throughput on the Pyot system having increased by over 60% since January of this year. Moose Jaw contribution was up slightly. As we talked about last quarter, the turnaround was completed below expected costs, so the increase was fairly small this quarter. Marketing segment profit of $23 million was very much within our target range. And, as Steve mentioned, a good result in a challenging environment. Refined products had a fairly strong quarter, supported by attractive road asphalt, roofing flux, and tops margins, with volumes comparable to last year. On the crude marketing side, opportunities were very limited, with contribution mostly driven by time-based positions brought into the quarter. In terms of our outlook for the fourth quarter, as Steve said, absent a change in the environment, it will be a fairly challenging quarter for marketing, as this sideways market doesn't present a lot of opportunities for the crude marketing business. In refined products, with the paving season largely complete, limited drilling expected for the balance of the year, and weakening margins on a roofing flux sales due to narrowing differentials putting downward pressure on our crude index-based term contracts, the fourth quarter will almost certainly be the weakest of the year. Given the crude marketing business specifically is very much an opportunity-driven business, there certainly could be upside to our break-even outlook for the segment, but as Steve said, we're not going to in any way change our risk tolerance to achieve that upside. For perspective, marketing segment profit through the first nine months of the year has been $103 million. So at worst, we are still going to be well within the long-term run rate for the year with the potential for that to improve if the environment changes or some opportunities arrive. In terms of developing our financial strategy and the long-term expectations we message to the market and recognizing we would find ourselves in this situation at some point, we are very deliberate in designing a framework that anticipated eventual volatility in the variable parts of our business. For that reason, in addition to our overall leverage target being conservative relative to peers, despite the cash flows from our infrastructure business being amongst the highest quality, our financial governing principles include measures for maintaining infrastructure-only leverage at or below four times, as well as not paying out more than 100% of our infrastructure-only cash flows. As a result, by design, even with an expected moderation of contribution from our marketing business in the fourth quarter, we remain in a very strong financial position, including being fully funded for all our anticipated capital. Returning to the third quarter results, there is definitely some noise from unrealized gains and losses between this quarter and the second quarter. Recall that last quarter, we had $20 million in unrealized losses that we added back to segment profit as to increase adjusted EBITDA. Recall also that at the time, 
We very much looked through that increase in our discussion of the results, as we knew that it was temporal and it would even out in time. This quarter, we had an $11 million unrealized gain. G&A and the other items between segment profit and adjusted EBITDA were nearly identical in the last two quarters. So the difference between this quarter and the second quarter is about two-fifths the change in marketing segment profit and about three-fifths the impact of financial instruments with infrastructure up slightly. Quickly, working down to distributable cash flow on a sequential basis. Replacement capital of $3 million in the third quarter was $4 million lower than in the second quarter. With lower taxable income this quarter, current tax expense decreased by $10 million to only $2 million. And interest and lease payments were also slightly lower than in the second quarter. This resulted in distributable cash flow this quarter being $7 million lower than the third quarter of last year, resulting in our payout ratio remaining relatively flat at 62%, still well below our 70 to 80% target range. Similarly, our debt to adjusted EBITDA remained relatively flat at 2.7 times, which remains below our three to three and a half times target. Our bias continues to be towards maintaining a conservative financial position, including remaining fully funded for all our capital and maintaining access to significant liquidity. At the end of the quarter, we are only $95 million drawn on our $750 million credit facility with about $45 million of cash in the balance sheet, implying we have access to a net $700 million through our credit facility, as well as to over $100 million in unutilized capacity on our $150 million bilateral demand facilities. Given our outlook for capital in 2020 of about $300 million, we will carry out some funding capacity into 2021, meaning we have clear line of sight to funding the 2021 capital program with cushion on top of that. During the quarter, we also took further steps to continue to move from a high yield to an investment grade capital structure. In July, we completed the refinancing of our 5.25% 2024 notes with two tranches bearing an average coupon of 2.65%, cutting our annual interest costs on that $600 million almost in half while also extending the average maturity by two years. Through this refinancing, as well as the one completed in September of last year, the weighted average coupon on our notes would be, by far, the lowest within our Canadian mid-sized peer group at just over 3%, while at the same time having the second longest weighted average tenor. In total, these steps have reduced our interest costs by over $20 million per year meaningfully improving our conversion of EBITDA into distributable cash flow. At the end of August, we put in place an NCIB. I think that this very much speaks to the strength of our financial position, where not only is our capital fully funded without the need for a drip or discrete equity issuance, but we are also one of the very few mid-treating companies in North America in a credible position to return capital shareholders via buyback over the next year. That said, we'd expect our use of the buyback to be fairly modest, if at all, throughout the balance of the year. It is our intention to provide additional visibility on how we will utilize our NCIB as part of our 2021 capital outlook in December. Though, given our conservative bias 
and stated policy of buybacks being a mechanism to return excess cash for marketing outperformance to shareholders, I suspect that our willingness to begin a meaningful share buyback will be somewhat limited until the outlook for marketing improves. In summary, the business had another good quarter. Our infrastructure segment had a very strong quarter and marketing was within our long-term run rate expectation. We don't count on marketing outperformance, hence we very much remain on plan in a position to continue to execute our strategy. We remain well positioned with a resilient business. We have market leading quality of cash flows, a strong balance sheet, and are more than fully funded. At this point, I will turn the call over to the operator to open it up for questions. Thank you. As a reminder, to ask a question, you'll need to press star 1 on your telephone. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Our first question comes from Jeremy Tonette with J.P. Morgan. You may proceed with your question. Hi, good morning. Just morning, wanted Jeremy. to start off. Uh, there's been some, some M&A in the industry so far, uh, you know, notably Synovus Husky, and I think you know, uh, there's been some debate in the marketplace and how this could impact uh, Gibson. And so just wondering if you might be able to comment on that a bit. Um, you know, um, as far as uh, Synovus and Husky, um, when we look at our terminal, uh, and I think I talked about it in my in my our remarks. We think that we provide the greatest uh, synergies and netbacks to, to to any producer at Hardesty. So we're confident in any business that we have with those uh, two companies will remain, and we'll continue to improve their netbacks and and optimize their crude streams into the future. Got it. Could you, I guess, just refresh us on your weighted average contract duration for Hardesty as it stands right now? Yeah, I don't have that number. Do you have that number? Yeah, I mean, Jeremy, it's, you know, be just under 10 years. We don't really distinguish between Hardesty and Edmonton in general, but, you know, if you think about it, you know, circa sort of nine-ish years would be the weighted average across both terminals, uh, you know, reflective of, you know, the tankage that we've put on. Uh, even more recently, and just the absolute longer duration of the contract that we're able to achieve. Got it. So it seems like nothing could change for a long time anyways, regardless. So that's helpful. Thanks. Um, and then separately kind of pivoting towards capital allocation here, uh, you talked about it uh, in the prepared, part, prepared remarks, but hoping for a bit more here, and how you evaluate dividend increases versus buybacks versus increased CapEx in 2021, seeing that you have this financial flexibility here. And really, how does leverage fit in, and do you worry that carrying such low leverage could lead Gibson to being a takeout target at kind of depressed equity levels? Yeah, why don't I take that? I mean, our capital allocation philosophy has been, you know, very consistent. Uh, we first introduced it at our January of 18 Investor Day. But first and foremost, to the extent that we uh, have capital growth opportunities that are very much in line with what we typically invest. So think, you know, five to seven build multiples, long-term contracts with investment-grade capital uh, counterparties. That's going to be absolutely our capital allocation priority. 
Uh, if beyond that we have excess cash flow, and that you know by definition for us is you know outside of our target leverage ranges, um, then really the capital allocation philosophy is dependent on where that excess cash flow is coming from. You know we talked about it a bit in our prepared remarks, but to the extent that that excess cash flow is coming from our infrastructure segment, then we would bias dividend increases over time. You know, we had our first dividend increase since 2016 last year. Uh, and, and so to the extent that excess cash flow would continue to come from that, we would bias, you know, annual dividend increases. Of course, that is very much a board decision. And one that we only discuss annually on the back of our year-end results in February. To the extent that that excess cash flow comes from our marketing business, then we would buy share buybacks. So really nothing has changed from a capital allocation philosophy. You know, you also asked about leverage. Perhaps I'll start on that answer and then Steve can finish it off. But, you know, we, we remain firmly committed to our leverage targets that we've put out. Again, these have not changed since our January of 2018 Investor Day. So, you know, as a reminder for everybody listening, that's three to three and a half times on a consolidated basis, four times or less on a infrastructure-only basis. You know, as we sit here right now, you're absolutely right. You know, 2.7 times, well below the consolidated target. You know, the question about whether or not lower leverage makes us a target, I mean, at the end of the day, we're here for our ultimate shareholders. You know, so, you know, we think having this conservative leverage profile is absolutely the right thing for the company and for all of our stakeholders. And so something like that is not something that we you know, take into real consideration as we think about what the appropriate targets might be. I, I don't know, Steve, do you want to comment on the second half of that, just in around, uh, you know, potential for takeout or whether or not we're worried about our vulnerability? You know, at the end of the day, probably the most, one of the most precious assets that we have here at Gibson is our balance sheet. And that strong balance sheet has, uh, has served as well. And we're going to continue to have our conservative view when it comes to balance sheet. Got it. That makes sense. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you. Our next question comes from Patrick Kenny with National Bank Bank Financial. You may proceed with your question. Yeah, good morning. Um, let's start with marketing as well. And I appreciate the uh, transparency into Q4, but you know, perhaps looking into 2021 based on what looks to be similar, you know, modest contango environment, uh, pipeline egress filling up, and still relatively tight differentials. Would you say you have a bias to the lower end of that 80 to 120 annual guidance? Or, you know, are you seeing other factors, um, again, as we sit here today, supporting confidence in, in still being able to achieve or exceed, um, you know, the midpoint of the guidance range? You know, that the 80 to 120... Uh, we've we put that out there for a while now, um, and it's, it's difficult to say where we'll land because next year is that full year. Uh, you know, this year, uh, you know, we're going to be we're going to be on the top half of that 80 to 120 at the end of the year. Uh, but um, next year is hard to say, right? I mean, uh, all I know is that you know our uh, We'll be poised to capture uh, opportunities as they develop, and and uh, and excited uh, about the recovery of, for crude oil for refined products. 
sometime next year. And as that recovery starts, our margins across Moose Jaw will 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 gain will gain steam. And um, we think you know the differentials between w, WTI and WCS will become more normalized across the year, which continues to drive revenue at our Moose Jaw facility. Uh, Sean, why don't you answer that last? Yeah. There's a there's another piece on the adjusted EBITDA to the. To yeah, the, yeah. Well, I mean, again, I mean, what Steve's talking about there is very much, you know, on an as-reported basis. Um, and, and I guess, you know, just to summarize that, you know, we I'd say we very much. If somebody asked me, you know, where should we be next year, I, I'd say 80 to 120, absolutely. You know, we've got confidence in that, like we do always. You know, this is a business where. You know, we've got an extremely talented team that's able to find opportunities. So I, I certainly wouldn't point to, you know, bias to being at the lower end as we sit here right now, Pat. Um, you know, the second part, and I think maybe just to address it, you know, Steve had talked about, you know, being at the, you know, higher end. And we did have some noise this quarter in around, you know, the real, uh, unrealized gains or losses that we see there, um, you know, so just to address that. I mean, I said it in my prepared remarks. But, you know, this is something we very much, you know, we'd expect to even out over the course of the year, and we've largely seen it. Um, you know, so though we had an unrealized gain of $11 million this quarter, which, you know, we saw in some notes, you know, people were, uh, you know, calling it a realized marketing segment profit. You know, we would highlight that we had a $20 million loss, you know, we looked through last quarter as well. So for us, this is absolutely normal course of the business and how we run it and would expect that it normalizes over the year, which it largely has as we sit here today. Okay, thanks. That, that's great color. Um, and then just zoning in on, you know, the export pipelines, again, filling up out of Hardesty. Wondering if there is a Biden victory tonight, and, you know, assuming he does follow through and, and take back the uh, presidential permit for KXL, if you would expect an increase in, the level of discussions that you're having around uh, a second phase for the DRU, say, over the next few months? Or um, if third-party demand isn't there right away, I mean, would you guys consider building a second phase for your own proprietary use and, uh, you know, increase your opportunities around locational arbitrage on the marketing side? Yes, Pat. Um I would say, you know, if there's a Biden victory, um, you know, he's made some pretty strong statements about KXL um, and the KXL expansion. Um, and I would say that is more positive towards the DRU. Um, overall, we would love to see the KXL move forward because we see long term, you know, over the next 10, 10 years that, that we're going to build a lot of tanks to help support KXL into the future. But in the short term, you're probably correct. That's going to drive more interest in the DRU, especially the U.S. refiners. Uh, you know, as, as those crack spreads uh, start to return, you know, their demand for that Canadian crude continues to, to get stronger as the Venezuelan and the Mayan Mexico crude continue to decline. So a lot of that, a lot of the interest that we had pre-COVID was driven by those big U.S. refiners uh, that wanted that neat bitumen uh, to maximize the refinery runs. Uh, and we think as 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 that normalizes back on refined products demand in the U.S., we're going to see 
that interest uh, rematerialize next year. And just to confirm, not much of an appetite to build the second phase for your own marketing group? No. Um, yeah, we, I don't think we'd, we haven't even considered doing anything on spec like that. Got it. Okay. And, and just last one for me, guys, if I could, um, on the ESG front, you made quite a bit of progress here in just a few months. Um, can you maybe just walk us through some of your top priorities uh, between now and, say, the end of next year? either on the disclosure front, um, setting new environmental targets, and then on the back of that, maybe just you know, given the tough crowd out there for oil-related investments in general, just how are you guys thinking about you know, shifting that narrative around your asset base being tied to the oil sands and you know, instead being viewed as more of an ESG accretive holding for investors? Um, a great question. Um, First, just on the disclosure front, you know, we did submit uh, the, our, CDP, our first CDP um, disclosure this year, uh, and we should be getting our ratings back uh, probably early in early next year. Um, and then, so you know, if our, our main admitter is is Moose Jaw, so we continue to look for opportunities to reduce our carbon footprint at Moose Jaw. And we've come up with a couple of projects um, that have that have that five that have that five better than five times payout and reduce our hydrocarbon footprint there. So we continue to look for opportunities to reduce that carbon footprint. But then, if you look at us overall to other midstreamers, uh, you know we don't we don't run the compression and we don't have the big large pipe uh, mainline pumps. So our Phase one and phase two is extremely low on a per revenue basis and on a um, and on a per barrel throughput basis. And I, I think it's very difficult for really anyone in North America to compete with us on a midstream basis uh, in our sector. Uh, so um, just because of the, the type of business that we have. As far as looking at other opportunities, you know. Um, we will look for other opportunities to spend into the, into that sector, uh, you know, and that's part of our as we develop our strategy. That's one of the one of the items in the strategy that we'll take a look at. That, but we've made no decision on how we'll do that. Okay, that's great. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Sean. I'll leave it there. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Our next question comes from Robert Kwong with RBC Capital Markets. You may proceed with your question. Good morning. Um, just wondering whether it is, you know, comments as it relates to uh, discussions for new infrastructure or your outlook for marketing to 2021. Is there anything you see in terms of the lifting of the curtailments um, that, that could be helpful to you? Well, I mean, uh, the lifting of the curtailments, I think, was about 75,000 barrels a day. Uh, also, you know, we've had significant outage uh, in the oil sands, and as those come online, uh, along with the lifting of the the, uh, the production uh, restrictions, um, we see we see that that's you know that's where I was saying WCS to WTI tightening across the year. Uh, 
as that as that occurs. I mean, a widening across the year as that occurs, um, which which will help really our moose job facility in driving that margin from the refined product sales, which is based, which is based really on a U.S. kind of uh, uh, Gulf Coast refined products pricing and uh, and and the WCS or heavy crude pricing coming in, coming from Canada. Um, so that's one of the reasons we're we're more positive um, in that staying within that 80 to 120 next year, Robert. Okay. Um, if I can maybe just turn to capital allocation, and, and you've talked about you know marketing outperformance being tied to W or to um, sorry the NCIB. Just wondering though, like if you see Western Canadian infrastructure investments, um, you know, coming in below your expectations, you also put out 25 to 50 in the U.S. infrastructure. What's the bias then? Would it be to put more money, you know, above that 50 into the U.S., or would you then look to the NCIB for for excess cash flow? Thanks, Robert. Maybe I'll, I'll start that, and Steve can backfill as necessary. I mean, we, we are not going to chase capital you know, based on our financial position. So, you know, the visibility we have to the U.S. right now is the high-quality projects that are in front of us. You know, we're going to remain very, very disciplined as we look to deploy that capital. Uh, and so we'll not chase it because we view ourselves as having excess capital. I mean, if additional projects surface, you know, as I said earlier on my capital allocation answer, uh, if additional projects surface that, you know, have the criteria that we typically are able to sanction, then absolutely we deploy it there, but, but we're not going to look to go above that just because we have that excess capital. And, and that's what we really like about the NCIB. It does allow us to remain disciplined, you know, the extent that we have excess capital above, you know, the growth capital projects that we see with the characteristics that we typically invest in, then we'll either allocate that to the NCIB and or, you know, dividend increase depending on the source. But, but we're certainly going to remain disciplined as we think about allocating that growth capital and are not going to look to chase it. Yeah, and then if you just look at the, kind of that capital outlook next year, you know, we do, we do have the 25 to 50 in the state, but we have the DRU spend, and then we have, we have projects uh, at Edmonton that are not tankage, that are pretty significant size, uh, that, that we continue to progress. Um, and then we do believe that, you know, we will, we will sanction, sanction some tankage next year, and in that, uh, you know, we'll have some capital spend from that tankage, with the majority of that tankage spend probably being really 2022. Understood. Um, if I can just finish then with marketing, and trying to deconstruct Q3, but as well, just how that feeds into your Q4 guidance. So on the second quarter call, though, you, I think, mentioned that you expected EBITDA to be fairly close to segment profit, and then a couple of things that could move it around would have been any commodity price movements, which didn't look like they occurred during the quarter, or if you just deferred crystallizing positions. So um, you did end up with a very significant mark, uh, unrealized gain. So can you just kind of square up what you said in Q2, how that fed into Q3, and at why kind of Q4 then, you, you, we didn't see that spillover. Yeah, so, so Robert, when we, when we exited Q2, we had pretty significant inventory that was hedged. And a lot of those hedges were, weren't, were hedged into the, into the fourth quarter. 
Um, and so we just brought those hedges forward and and uh, into the into the third quarter, and that's where that's that's the that's the exact change of of our of our uh, of our expectation is we just pulled those edges forward. You know, we did say don't look at the the adjusted EBITDA of that 19.6 million, uh, which you know we we knew that we had these edges out there. Uh, some of them, some of them actually extended into into 2021, and we pulled all of those forward uh, into this quarter. So, so I think too, Robert, just to, yeah, just to close that off, as we liquidated all the positions, is you know our expectation is because we pulled those forward, that you know for Q4 segment profit and adjusted EBITDA will actually be very very close. Again, as Steve said, because we pulled those forward from Q4 into this quarter, so. You're absolutely correct in your question, um, and Steve clarified why. Okay. Did you anticipate pulling those forward when you had the call in Q2? No, nope. we. It was a strategic decision we made during the quarter to do that. So on the Q2 call, you're absolutely right. We had indicated that we felt like segment profit and adjusted EBITDA would be very similar, which would imply that those would have stayed, uh, you know, through to Q4 or even into 2021, as Steve noted, and. As we move through the quarter, you know, for various reasons, we elected to move those forward into this quarter. So that, that was not our expectation at the time, and it is a variance to what our messaging was last quarter. Okay, but if you pulled those realized gains forward and crystallized into Q3, doesn't that mean that the underlying in Q3 was even worse then? No, segment profit, uh, segment profit of $23 million is, is really right where we expected. Uh, um, and I, the unrealized gain, if you look across the year, just like Sean said, the unrealized gains and losses versus segment profit is virtually uh, is plus or minus $2 million or four, 2 or $3 million. And I think it's actually plus, and that's because we carried in some gains from, from, uh, from last year. That's great. Thank you. Thanks, Robert. Thank you. Our next question comes from Linda Ezergalis with TD Securities, and you may proceed with your question. Thank you. I have a question just to follow up on implications uh, for Gibson on uh, upstream producers and integrateds consolidating. Um, you touched on uh, that uh, your existing operations should remain strong and contracted, but I'm just wondering what sort of emerging opportunities and challenges there might be, um, not just as it relates to how larger consolidated producers uh, might change their their use of uh, tanks and, and, and uh, sanctioning of new tanks prospectively, but also um, as it relates to opportunities that your marketing business might have. Uh, with uh, fewer um, uh, producers and integrateds potentially uh, in the markets uh, physically and I guess financially on the marketing side. Uh, and uh, also as it relates to over the long term your U.S. strategy and um, the potential merits for DRU being higher or lower for certain consolidated producers. I would say, you know, Thank you. Thank you for the question, Linda. Um, 
You know, as producers consolidate, uh, I think, you know, the demand, that doesn't change the overall demand for tankage. Uh, they still need that, that, that uh, number of days of storage, and they still need the same uh, blending, op op uh, blending services that we provide. Uh, so I don't see it actually changing. You know, Hardesty is not overbuilt, and so we're, that's one of the reasons we're really remain confident on, on recontracting at Hardesty. And actually, there is some opportunities uh, to continue to expand there. Uh, as we move forward. Uh, if you look in the states, the consolidation in the states really has really no impact whatsoever on us. Um, uh, you know, the, the, as the small producers consolidate there. Um, it, I'll turn it over to Sean and see if do you have any opinion there. Yeah, no, I think consolidation. I mean, consolidation in general, I mean, is good for the sector. I mean, it's going to cut costs out of the sector, and having strong customers is good for everybody, certainly in Western Canada and, you know, across North America. So, I mean, we would be a fan of consolidation in general because it cuts costs out of the sector and creates stronger counterparties. And as Steve said, Hardesty is not overbuilt. You know, and even a, you know, a stronger counterparty are going to have the same amount of production. They're going to need the same amount of tankage. So... You know, in general, we would view the consolidation trend that we're seeing as being marginally positive for us because it's going to create stronger counterparties for the company. And, and how might it affect your marketing operations over the long term and, and just the, uh, the opportunities uh, that present themselves um, uh, in the markets for your marketing segment? Yeah. Um I don't really see that, you know, I haven't seen that that's going to impact our marketing business at all, you know. If you look at our marketing business, it's, uh, the main focus is the refined products business there in Moose Jaw. Uh, and then, you know, there is marketing opportunities at Edmonton and at Hardesty uh, around some tankage that we do have there. Uh, but I don't see the consolidation uh, playing a big, a big factor in that on a go-forward basis. I have not heard that that is a concern at all coming out of our marketing organization. Okay, thank you for that context. Just as a follow-up, um, with regards to your capital allocation decisions, uh, as the industry is in flux, um, some acquisitions um, might uh, come up opportunistically um, for Gibson, whether it be uh, tuck-in acquisitions or larger ones. And, you know, for example, if, if producers that, that um, you know, own assets or steel huggers uh, decide to shed uh, select assets or your competitors, um, how, how does Gibson evaluate the opportunities uh, and the merits of uh, acquisitions versus other uh, uh, priorities? Well, you know, I think I talked about that earlier. Probably one of our most precious assets is that balance sheet and preserving that balance sheet. So if there are opportunities that do develop, uh, the balance sheet is probably going to be our, one of our number one uh, drivers in any kind of decision. So that quality of cash flow and that length of term and the counterparty risk is all going to be very important along to, to continue to ensure that we have that balance sheet and uh, and, you know, we look more, we continue to look like the type of investment that we are today. Thank you. 
Thank you. Our next question comes from Rob Hope with Scotiabank. You may proceed with your question. Uh, morning, everyone. Uh, just uh, one follow-up and clarification. Uh, Steve, in, in the prepared remarks, you made a, a comment about uh, the lower end of the two to four tanks uh, per year. Just just a, a question there in terms of the time frame you're looking at. Are you looking at 2020 there, or is the expectations that there'll be no tanks in Q4 and that will be at the lower end, in, lower end of the range in 2021? Yeah, so when I made that comment, the two to four tanks, I think that was really over a longer period of time, right? So really over the next four to five years is where I'm when I made that comment. Not, you know, because I said that really this year that that's gotten pushed into next year. And you really, these tanks do come lumpy. If you look at last year and the year before, they're pretty lumpy. Uh, so as far as when they're contracted. Um, so really when I made that lower end of two to four, that's in a longer term context of really over the next four to five years. Okay. And then maybe just uh, diving in that a little bit deeper. So that implies that I guess some expansion at Hardesty could be pushed into 2021. And then on top of that, you could get some TMX tanks uh, towards the end of the year. Exactly right. All right. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Robert Cadillier with CIBC Capital Markets. You may proceed with your question. Hey, good morning. Most of my questions have been answered at this point, but I, I did want to thank you for the transparency on the marketing business. In particular, your uh, statement about not wanting to change your risk tolerance to uh, chase um, opportunities in a weak market. Um, so I just want to make sure I understand the um, uh, both the Q4 and the long-term guidance as it relates to unrealized gains and losses. So my understanding is that despite um, the unrealized gain that was recorded in Q3, uh, the expectation is that uh, segment profit and EBITDA in Q4 will be uh, very similar, um, close to that break-even point you mentioned. Yep, that's absolutely correct, Rob. And the same thing for the 80 to 120 long term. You know, obviously some quarters you'll have gains and some you'll have losses, but is the overriding assumption there that uh, the segment profit will um, be very similar to the EBITDA and that the gains and losses will fluctuate a bit, but those two numbers will be the same? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's, that's really what we tried to get out in the prepared remarks, that over time that those are always going to be the same. So, I mean, just for example, if you look at last year, you know, through the quarters, we had, you know, a gain or a loss in each individual quarter, you know, from the unrealized, um, you know, so Q1, you know, was a negative 3.4, Q2 positive 6.7, Q3 minus 12.2, Q4 positive 6.3. You saw over the course of the year, the net impact was like $2 million on a $197 million you know, marketing segment profit. And, you know, so again, over time, you know, our expectation and, you know, they, they have to, they're going to be basically zero. So that's absolutely right. That 80 to 120, it assumes over the course of the year that segment profit will equal, you know, adjusted EBITDA on a marketing basis if we reported like that. Yeah, that's what I thought. Just my, my last question here. Um, you touched on the curtailments a bit. I'm just curious to, as to what you you see from producer behavior in terms of the uh, uh, the, the volume outlook. On the one hand, 
you know, the curtailments were lifted, but, you know, at 75,000 barrels, maybe not that impactful. And at the same time, we still have pretty anemic prices. So do you get a sense on uh, sort of direction of production from the producers? You know, I would just say, you know, that 75 coming on, I would say the conventional production uh, in Canada is still kind of down that 20 to 30%. Uh, conventional heavy and conventional light combined. Um, and the oil sands uh, projects, there are still several out there that are struggling to come back uh, onto full, to full uh, production. Uh, so as those oil sands projects come into full production, and the sanction and the and the restrictions are lifted. Uh, you know you're gonna you're gonna see the need for uh, you're gonna see inventory start to build again, and you're gonna see the need uh, for rail. And we're already starting to see that at Hardesty. With uh, you know from May through August, uh, we did not load a rail car out of Herc, uh, and we loaded a couple out in September. Uh, we're going to load a couple more out in October, but that seems to, those nominations continue to grow uh, as this production uh, starts to come back online. But, you know, we saw record low inventories in Canada, and that was just as we had, a, we had more egress capacity uh, than we had uh, production for a couple months there. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. Our next question comes from Andrew Kusk with Credit Suisse. You may proceed with your question. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, probably first question is for Sean, and it just relates to you know what was a pretty noisy quarter in the upstream uh, with things like the Polaris outage and just some other issues with the oil sands producers. If those things didn't happen, is there a way to get a sense of how your quarter would have looked either on the infrastructure side or the marketing side? Do you have a feel for that? I mean, specifically, um, no, I mean, again, it, it, it's a loaded question with respect to marketing because what would have the impact been? I mean, I think Steve talked to about it. You know, right now it is a bit of a sideways market uh, for marketing. You know, there's not very much volatility. Differentials are relatively narrow. Flat price is low. You know, so, you know, specific to, you know, Polaris, I don't see that making a huge difference. And then on the infrastructure side, you know, we actually think we had a pretty good quarter, you know, and that business continues to trend. So, you know, I, I haven't put thought specifically to what would be the impact if Polaris hadn't have gone down, you know, hadn't have come down. But, um, you know, I, I don't think it actually would have had an absolutely material impact if you think about sort of the specific factors within the quarter. Okay, thank you. And then just as a, a second question, could you just give an update on your land bank position, both in Alberta, on the number of tanks that you think you can build over a longer period of time, and then also at Wink? Yeah, so, you know, I'll start it. You know, at, we've talked about it often. You know, at Edmonton, we've got the ability to add roughly, you know, two or, you know, just slightly over two million barrels. You know, so at Edmonton, we are space-constrained. You know, at Hardesty, we're not space-constrained. We've got, you know, directly south of our terminal, 240 contiguous acres uh, connected to our terminal. You know, even after we finish the build-out of the top of the hill, you know, so think of that being circa 15 million barrels, 
you know, we're confident that we could double that footprint directly contiguous to what we have. And even if that got built out, then, you know, we've got additional land out near the unit train facility that we would next tie into. So, you know, from a Canadian perspective, Hardesty basically unlimited land. Edmonton, we are constrained, but we're constrained similar to everyone else there. And, you know, we've been fairly open about that. I don't know, Steve, do you want to talk about our land position at Wink? Uh, yes, we have a, we own a Three, 320 acres there in Wink. We're really not limited in any at all, in any facet at all. We can build, you know, over 12 million barrels of storage at Wink if need be. Uh, uh, then you just building on what Sean said, you know, we still have room to add 1.5 million barrels in the top of the hill. And what that means is that that is that the it's a very competitive. We always say five to seven. And so those, that means that most, if not all, the infrastructure is kind of built for that, uh, and we can be very competitive uh, if any additional tankage need to be built uh, there at, at Hardesty. Maybe just a final one, if I may, uh, and it relates to Wink. Um, just given the market dynamic we see in pockets in the U.S., and in particular in that sort of neck of the woods, would you be better off buying versus building at this stage in time? Buying tankage at Wink, uh, there is no real tankage at Wink except for so Wink's kind of the launching point for the the Epic, the Gray Oak, uh, the big pipeline, own the big Exxon pipeline. That's 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 the that's the launching point out of the Delaware Basin into the U.S. Gulf Coast, and so the tankage being built there. Uh, we're 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 the one only ones really offering any real uh, commercial or uh, uh, com storage to to um, you know to to the customers there. And our strategy was to connect to those pipelines, and we're continuing to move forward. We're already flowing on one. We'll be flowing on another one here uh, in about a month and a half, and another one uh, in the second quarter of next year. So. With that, you know, one of the things, one of our philosophies was is those pipelines are going to be overbuilt, and in them being overbuilt, that the shippers are going to want, there's going to be a, draw, a large sucking sound to try to get volumes onto those pipes, and we wanted to provide that tankage and connectivity to allow those producers to connect with those marketers, and uh, that strategy continues to play out, and we think it'll be an effective strategy. Um, build reason, sorry, you can build out Hardesty South effectively. Yes, it's somewhat, you know, and even in my prepared remarks, I said we're connecting to third-party gathering. So, you know, we look to connect it to two third-party gatherers by the end of the year. And so with that, we're just trying to drive liquidity and volume through our terminal and provide that, uh, that kind of Hardesty type of opportunity or either the producer who's trying to find its absolute net back or a shipper, any shipper on the pipeline that wants supply to, that needs supply to fill their commitment on the pipeline. That's great, thank you. Thank you. And I would now like to turn the, I'm not showing any further questions at this time, I would now like to turn the call back over to Mark for any further remarks. Thanks, Josh, and thanks to everyone for joining us on this third quarter conference call. Again, I'd like to note that we made certain supplementary information available on our website, gibsonenergy.com.
If you have any further questions, please reach out to us at Investor Relations at investor.relations at gibsonenergy.com. Hope everyone has a great day and thanks for joining us today. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.